You are listening to the 3CR podcast of Encyclopedia. Encyclopedia is broadcast live every Sunday from 2 p.m. For more information, head to 3cr.org.au. This is Encyclopedia on 3CR. Thank you to Freedom of Species. Back next week from 1 p.m. Website is 3cr.org.au where you can subscribe to any program's podcast and engage with them on social media and on their own websites. Today's show was recorded live at Rainbow Serpent Festival in January this year. The video is available to watch on Rainbow Serpent's YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash Rainbow Serpent HQ. Our topic was Australian festivals and the culture wars, a topic familiar to regular listeners of this show. Our focus on this show is drug policy. We talk about drug policy in a broad sense, our laws, social conventions, education, justice system and so on. But underneath this all is the reality of human lives. And for as long as there has been humanity, there has been a quest to explore new frontiers. But there is always also a wondering, a pondering, how far is too far? Which paths should be less tread? And in response, some choose to quest anyway, wondering whether what is said to be really is. I think 3CR is the voice of the people, speaking back to the establishment and telling them what they think, and sometimes it's something they don't want to hear. (laughs) Okay, that might have been a bit more ambiguous than I intended. Enjoy. The panel this afternoon is Culture Wars and Australian Festivals. We've got one hour and a whole range of guests, so we're going to keep the pace fairly quick. Um, this is also going to be recorded for a radio show in Melbourne called In Psychedelia on uh, Melbourne's 3CR. Uh, so Ash and I have been doing this for three and a half years, um, uh, broadcasting weekly uh, news, interviews, conferences, panels like this one, uh, and mostly Melbourne-based music as well. Uh, Ten years ago, I came to my first Rainbow. This is my 10-year anniversary for Rainbow. Uh, it was the first time I'd been to a, a Bushdorf as well. I was in my early 20s, so later for some, later than some people, early, earlier than others. Um, and it, I guess I was a bit of a naive 20-something. Didn't really know about these things, but I was a bit of a web-dwelling psychonaut, interested in websites like uh, like Erowid, um, and uh, forums like Shroomery, uh, and just sort of interested in in this in this world uh, of psychedelic experiences, substances, all the sort of esoteric things, the sciencey things, the all, all the different aspects of this world. Um, but I've been looking at it mostly through, you know, the portal of my computer. Uh, I knew about the psychedelic influence in culture. It's pretty obvious. You see it all around you in the music that we listen to, in the art that we see, um, uh, and in mainstream as well. We see these sorts of things in big blockbuster movies, psychedelic-type concepts that have leaked through into the mainstream. Um, uh, but I didn't really see that that culture of fellow travellers living nearby until I came along to Rainbow Serpent. And then uh, around that time, I also went along to, um, to my first confest. I went along to an EGA conference and a bunch of folk festivals as well and sort of started to note and, uh, notice a bit of a pattern, different music, but a uh, similar community. Uh, EGA in particular inspired me to get involved with this newfound community. And that's how I sort of started getting involved with these things. Um, started volunteering, volunteering with DanceWise, uh, started a podcast that was this radio show before it became a radio show and um, uh, then in 20 that was in 2015 when we got picked up uh, to start broadcasting on 3CR so that's a bit of uh, background on the show uh, so this afternoon we have a number of guests um, on our panel and I've got uh, many uh, okay first up 
at the end, uh, Steph Genetis. Uh, Steph is the coordinator of the DanceWise program uh, in Victoria and a bloody legend. Sitting, sitting next to her is David Limbrick. David Limbrick is a newly uh, elected Member of Parliament for the uh, Liberal Democrats in the South East Metropolitan Region. Background in science and computing, worked in data warehousing and business intelligence, uh, spent some years teaching in Tokyo, then worked in finance. Gosh, boring, David. <laughs> uh, but then he uh, found himself complaining about politics a lot and decided that he wasn't going to be one of those people complaining and not doing, and now he's in Parliament. So, David Limbrick. Thank you. Next to David is Melissa Dent. Melissa is the co-founder of RaveSafe. So RaveSafe was DanceWise. RaveSafe is DanceWise. Um, it rebranded in 2008, but RaveSafe began in 1995 uh, and was first funded in uh, 1999. Um, but Melissa's going to talk a little bit about that. Uh, Melissa is also uh, a community uh, involved in community development programs. Uh, she's an NSP worker and uh, does mental health complex care at the moment. Round of applause, for Melissa. Next to Melissa uh, is Christina, who is a lawyer with Doug and O'Brien, uh, Doug and George lawyers. And um, Christina is going to be able to answer some questions alongside her colleague uh, Sophie. And Sophie is standing, uh, oh, is sitting up the front here next to um, Fiona Patton. Who, uh, so we've got a few people around. This is going to be a bit interactive as well. Um, so Sophie is going to be able to answer questions that you have, especially if you have any uh, legal questions and you want to speak to a lawyer. Sophie will be able to do it. We're going to do some more generic, general questions, broad questions up here. Um, look out for the Be Heard Not Harmed t-shirts. They're the yellow ones. And you'll be able to have a chat uh, there. Uh, next to Christina is Jonathan Carmichael. Uh, Jonathan Carmichael is the founder, co-founder of EGA. And gosh, this is what happens when you make notes everywhere. And um, uh, is a psychedelic and ethno-botanical activist uh, who uh, is also a photographer and has been uh, involved with uh, party scene for uh, decades now. Far too long. <laughs> Robbie Swan next to him. <laughs> uh, Robbie Swan next to, next to Jonathan Carmichael. And uh, Robbie is the co-founder of the Australian Sex Party, now the Reason Party, um, but also used to work editing alternative culture magazines, Simply Living and Matilda Magazine. Robbie. Uh, David Caldicott next to Robbie Swan. David is an emergency physician at Calvary Hospital in, uh, in Canberra. Uh, David also has five children and manages to fit in uh, advocating for pill testing uh, around his uh, parental duties. Amazing, David. And finally, Nick Kent, the... Um, the National Director of Students for Sensible Drug Policy Australia, holds a Master's of Teaching and researches the state of drug education in our schools. Uh, he's also recently completed a mentorship program at the Centre for Australian Progress. And uh, also over the past year, Students for Sensible Drug, drug Policy have undergone a massive uh, change, a massive growth uh, through a program called Progress Labs, which has helped to build the structure of the organisation, professionalise it uh, and grow it into the one that you see today. Nick Kent. <laughs> Ah, and finally, Ash Blackwell, my co-host uh, on the show for uh, three and a half years. Do that? Yeah. So, um, hey guys. Um, so, I'm also a bit of an old schooler from Rainbow. I think my first Rainbow was in 2002. 
um, fell in love with the psychedelic culture and eventually just got frustrated with the disconnect between the reality of our experience and the policy that exists on the ground. So I started looking for the grassroots movement, the people calling for change, and Nick Wallace was one of the first people that I met. Back then, the people that were advocating for the kinds of changes that we're going to talk about today were a small group. And a lot of those people have gone on to found organisations. I helped found Students for Sensible Drug Policy Australia in 2016. We've got my co-founders, um, Penny and Chloe, over here. Um, and actually, Nick met us at this festival in 2016, and that's how he came to be involved. Um, so I started doing the show with Nick uh, from the first show in mid-2015, and I'm very enthusiastic about communities getting involved in calling for the changes that they want to see. Um, might just leave it there. Shall we right. get yep. into the panel? Yeah, yeah. So, again, you're at a panel called uh, Culture Wars and Australian Festivals. And I want to get to that term first because it's a prickly term. I don't really like it. I don't like this idea, uh, Culture Wars. It's not a phrase that I would regularly use, but I chose to use it because it's one that I've seen rolled out a lot uh, by politicians, commentators, uh, newspaper, talkback, radio, that sort of thing, and others um, who are seeking some cultural influence. And it usually seems to be rolled out, and maybe, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, have a think about it yourself, notice the term yourself, but it seems to be rolled out a lot to defend uh, conservative ideals, uh, often scapegoated with racial or sort of nationalistic overtones, like we've got to protect our culture against this and the culture wars, uh, they're trying to come in and change things, and oh, it's going to be bad and terrible. Um, so it's a term I wanted to use today because um, I find that the, the targets of uh, these conserv conservative cultural warriors often end up being the kind of people you see around you today. So have a look around. You're the targets. Um, sorry, that's, it sounds a bit full on, but I don't know, sometimes it can be. Uh, if you look around at the workshops, the panels, the art, the music you see, there's a lot of... Um, expression of progressive ideals. Even the panel before, uh, who was here for Bruce Pascoe, these are, these are ideas that don't often uh, get too far into the sort of mainstream culture. We have a very rather conservative mainstream culture and uh, we don't get to see that as much. You see um, these themes and ideas more associated with progressive ideals, uh, strong open communities seeking not the next answer to a problem, uh, but the right question to ask. I see a lot of question seekers among you. Uh, and in an our famous infamous tape captured during the, uh, during the Watergate crisis with Richard Nixon in the US, so going back to the 1970s, early 1970s, uh, he admitted that his escalation of the, uh, of, of the prohibition of drugs to a full-scale uh, full war on drugs uh, was a scapegoat to use against his political opponents. I can't remember the exact quote, but it was him in, his, uh, in, the, in the office I, getting pretty I nasty. Think I, I think I remember the quote. I put it up on a slide when I gave a talk here in 2017, I think. Um, we knew that uh, it wasn't about the drugs, um, but oh, no, I can't quite remember. Something about targeting... The leaders the, of the community. The, bl the blacks, quote-unquote. Yeah. yeah, the blacks, Jews, homosexuals and communists, uh, that was uh, David's recollection. So it was explicit in the targeting of the drug war that they were going after vulnerable communities and it was never about the drugs, not in Nixon's war, not now. And, and that led, uh, the, the war on drugs that was created by the US government led to the uh, signing of a number of treaties that created an international uh, prohibitionary order that was led by the US and Australia is a part of that. Uh, in the early 1970s, uh, there was uh, the first 
precursor to the Drugs, Poisons and Controlled Substances Act of today. I think it was the Poisons Act in 1970, uh, and that was implemented after after this happened in the US. The UN uh, implemented these uh, these treaties uh, and created a, uh, a global war on drugs. But at the same time, there was a blooming uh, alternative cultures that were spreading across the Western world. Uh, Robbie Swan was uh, at university in the uh, in the 1970s and. Um, Went uh, went along to some some of the uh, earlier alternative culture festivals and might have a few stories from those days. Robbie, uh, yes. thanks, Nick. Yeah, I'm just here to offer some uh, a bit of a perspective, I suppose, on uh, what's led up to you all being here. Um, as in most uh, disciplines or you know whatever, there's a tradition that you know one thing leads to another, and Australia has a pretty rich history of uh, music festivals, which dates back to about uh, the first one was really, the first major one was 1971 uh, in Canberra. Um, and this was the first Aquarius Arts Festival. It was held at the ANU. And um, probably a lot of your grandparents might have been there if you're from the, that area. <laughs> um, but it was, a, it was probably the most political uh, music festival ever held in Australia. Um, and it was very important in that way uh, because uh, you know, when you think back to 1971, John Gorton had just been deposed as a Prime Minister. Um, ten years after that, he became the first patron of, or the second patron of Normal, the National Organisation for the Reform of Marijuana Laws. And it's pretty hard to see a Liberal Prime Minister now supporting, you know, being a patron of an organisation like that. I mean, can you imagine Tony Abbott or someone like that? Not likely. But that's what it was like in those days. The Liberal Party was a very different uh, party to what it is now. And uh, there were some very enlightened people about in politics. Um, I was arrested for growing 600 marijuana plants just before that festival and uh, spent a, you know, a little bit of time in and out of jail as a result of that. But we were growing that marijuana to fund the, the, the Vietnam War effort, the anti-Vietnam War effort. And, uh, you know, the, the money that we were going to get from selling that was, uh, was, was earmarked to go back to that war effort. So... You know, the, the festival offered an ideal opportunity to push that and to try and get other people on board to do the, the same thing. Um, however, in 1972, the war was over because Gough Whitlam became Prime Minister and, uh, and that finished up. But, but that first festival um, was really um, the beginning of, uh, you know, music festivals in Australia. And, uh, you know, quite apart from the politics of the time, you know, some of the best bands were there, like uh, Bakery from Western Australia and um, uh, Spectrum, which was a, you know, progressive rock band in, from Canberra that's played in many festivals after that. Um, and the Sydney Dance Company uh, came out of that and so did the Women's Electoral Lobby. They all came out of that festival. Uh, so it was not just a, a you know, a, a music festival. Uh, it had a lot of overtones of politics as well. It was also the, the time when the Australian Federal Police did the first ever baton charge in uh, full riot gear of students on a, on a campus. And um, to this day, there's only one record of that ever occurring, and that's on a website called milesago.com. was never reported in any newspapers, but uh, I was there and saw it, and, uh, you know, perhaps 50 or 60 people were bashed senseless, senseless by federal police in riot gear. And uh, to this day, no-one's ever accounted for it, and no-one knows why it happened, but it, it certainly happened. Um, at that festival, the, the main drugs were LSD and pot. You know, there really wasn't anything else there. That was most of it. Uh, and as the festivals in Australia changed over the years, the drugs changed as well. 
Um, the next big festival that I went to, which was uh, the, the Sunbury Festival on the Australia Day weekend in 1972 here in Melbourne. And that festival was very different. It was the most successful monetary festival that's ever been held. The 40,000 people turned up to that and the organisers made a mozza. And they learned a lot about how to make money out of festivals from that one. Um, the main gig and the headline there was Billy Thorpe, of course, and the Aztecs. And they, you know, that was the beginning of pub rock in Australia, really, was that festival. It was meant to be modelled on Woodstock, um, but it actually changed quite a bit. I mean, as it, as it transgressed through the long weekend, it turned into a real rabble. And, uh, you know, Jack Daniels and beer was the main drugs at the end of that festival. And it, a lot of people left on the last day because they saw it degenerate into something that they didn't really want to be at. Um, but it was very successful as a, as a, as a successful, as a, you know, a financial event. And lots of people running festivals took note of that. Um, the last one, the last one of those was the next year, of course, in 1973, which was the second Aquarius Arts Festival in Nimbin up in uh, northern New South Wales. And even though it was probably the least well attended of all of those, um, I think only between five and 10,000 people came to it. Um, I remember it well as the, probably the best organised festival and it was the most successful in that it, it, it was the one that progressed festivals after that for many years. And the reason for that was it wasn't just music and it wasn't just drugs, but it was about lifestyle as well. It had politics in it as well. But there was a whole lifestyle thing went with that, you know, housing, uh, you know, ideology, everything. And um, it was the vision quest of all festivals and... Uh, in many ways, I think that festival was the one which is a precursor of the Rainbow Serpent festivals. I might be wrong there, but uh, I'm pretty sure that's the case. There was no big bands attended that festival. Um, you know, that was all local musicians, uh, individual musicians. Um, a lot of world music was featured at that one, which was not the case at the other festivals. And, uh, you know, um, I think, you know, 35 years on or whatever it is from then, we're still reaping the benefit of that one. So. Just to put that in perspective, the Aquarius Arts Festival at ANU in Canberra in 1971 was the beginning, a very political festival. Sunbury in Melbourne in 1972 was the big, um, you know, money-making festival. And Nimbin number three up in, uh, in 1973 was the lifestyle festival, which launched the, the rest of them. So someone ought to write a book about it. <laughs> <laughs> Says the author. Thank you, Robbie. Uh, so next up, we have uh, Dr. David Caldercott. Many of you who've been following the politics of drug policy in Australia will know him as one of the most vocal advocates for pill testing. But before that, in the 1980s, he was around the club scene in, was it London? In London. So he's going to tell a little bit about his, uh, I guess, genesis of interest in this area. Sure. Um, so I'd ask you to cast your mind back for the most of you uh, to place in utero. But in the 1980s, uh, Ireland was a very poor country and nobody could get a summer job. Uh, and so during the summers, we would either go to America or to London, usually to work on building sites. Um, and there was good money to be had and there was not a lot going on in Ireland. You could probably get some pot and certainly get whiskey and a lot of alcohol, but not a lot as far as drugs are concerned. Um, and so, and certainly not a great deal as far as sex was concerned either. Um, you needed to get a, um, a prescription to get a condom um, in the early 80s. Uh, so it was a, a voyage of adventure to go overseas. And uh, my, uh, I came from an academic family and therefore couldn't afford to go to America. So I went to London. And, uh, and I was in London 
towards the end of the 80s, 1988, 1989, and uh, 1990. I started medicine in 1990. Uh, and at that time, coincidentally, um, ecstasy emerged in the UK. So sort of the, it was largely, uh, Robbie's done the first Summer of Love, and I'm probably going to do the second, which was probably started in London in the late 80s, where unknown DJs like Danny Rampling and Paul Oakenfold and Carl Cox were taking summer trips to Ibiza and discovering fascinating things to bring back <coughs> and establishing small clubs that people could go to, places like Shoom and Spectrum. Um, and they were kind of, well, they were kind of like this, except on a minute scale, where people could basically hang out and listen to amazing music and chat and sample the delights of the world around them. And it was into that um, uh, space that I launched um, my drugs career, um, investigating a world where there were no contaminants, there was nothing except pure product coming from, uh, from Europe. Um, it was also around about the time where they had the M25 parties. So the rave scene all around London was based around the circuit uh, road around London called the M25. Um, and the, the one that I re recollect the best is probably the uh, White Waltham Airfield uh, uh, party, which they, there's a perfectly usable airfield just outside of Maidenhead, which was rendered unusable by a group considerably larger than this under the influence of all sorts of exciting material. Um, and basically that was uh, where I, I developed a love and a passion for this particular tribe. Um, when I decided to do medicine, I decided I would look into more into the sort of ways of keeping you safe. And since that time, that's mostly what I've been focused on. I did my, my medicine in London, uh, by, uh, funded by being a, uh, a nightclub doorman um, and frequently first aider. Uh, and then came out to uh, Australia in uh, 99. Uh, and, and so I rather assumed that everybody who I met in, in the UK would be, from Australia, would be absolutely as cool um, in Australia. But little did I know that all the cool people came to Europe and all the temperance movement stayed at home. Um, and so I, I came from a very open-minded London um, in the latter half or the latter years of the, uh, the last millennium into a place which was more akin to 1950s Alabama as far as drugs policy was concerned. Um, so it was smack bang in the middle of the proxy war on drugs, tough on drugs. And uh, it was really quite extraordinary for me. I was based in South Australia at the time, um, which I don't know if any of you have ever heard of. It's over that way. Um, and look, they're lovely people. Um, and they'd be far lovelier if they chose not to mate with people so closely related to themselves. Um, the, the problem there was that we had a, the, the influence of religion was very powerful and potent there, something that I know quite a lot about coming from Ireland. And so the religiosity of Australia, and particularly a, a group I'm particularly fond of, Drug Free Australia, I don't know if you've heard of them, they're a lovely bunch, and the Dalgarno Institute, and these strange Opus Dei characters who wander around and influence drugs policy in Australia. Um, from that point then, we started getting involved in the idea of pill testing. I, in 2001, treated a young man who had overdosed on PMA. 
despite everything I could do, he died, and it became clear that the way to stop people from dying from PMA was to ensure that they didn't eat it. And the best way to stop people eating dumb drugs was to identify dumb drugs um, and uh, tell them what was in it, and they make their own decisions. And so 2019 represents the 18th year um, of our campaign to introduce uh, pill testing into Australia. Uh, we're closer than we ever have been, and much of that is due to the younger members of my tribe, which is you. Thank you. Thank you, David. Thank you. And next up, we're, we're going to go straight from David to David, a uh, newly elected member of the Legislative Council in Victoria, but also a Rainbow Serpent old schooler who's uh, attended this festival about 20 years ago. So, David. Yep. Thank you, Ash. So, is this on? Yes. Okay. I'll pick it up. Um, yeah, it feels really surreal to be here. Um, so, as Ash said, I think it was about 1999 that I was here, and um, that makes it 20 years ago. So, I, um, I did a bit of research on Wikipedia the other day, and I discovered that that was the second ever Rainbow Serpent Festival. So, that was um, pretty amazing. But back then, I was quite a different person. Well, I wasn't a different person, but I looked quite different. Um, I had very long, curly hair. Um, I used to have an eyebrow piercing. And I also wore a really crazy uh, psychedelic shirt. Um, unfortunately, the long hair's gone um, and the eyebrow piercing's gone, but I, I moved house recently and I went through an old box and I found my crazy shirt. So um, this, I wore this and it wasn't fashionable then and it's not fashionable now and I don't care. But it's, um, yeah, it's pretty crazy. So, excuse me for a second, David. We're just, uh, David Caldicott has to uh, leave now. Yes. So, um, he's got some other things that he has to do. So, who, could we please just acknowledge him fly for joining in, us out. today? Fly out. panelists. Yeah, so, um, I've still got the crazy shirt, but to be honest, I'd rather my long hair, but, you know, uh, biology. Uh, interfered with that. But anyway, um, so I could never have predicted that the next time I'd come to a Rainbow Serpent Festival was uh, as a politician talking about drugs, which is quite strange to me. But um, I can tell you about some of my impressions from the time. So I'd, I'd actually been to a few other bush doofs. Um, I'd been to Earthcore and a couple of other random ones that I don't remember the name of and probably no one else does either. Um, but if I go camping these days, I'm, I'm very well prepared, probably better prepared than a Boy Scout. Um, my eldest son is actually a Boy Scout, but back then I was very unprepared. So all I came with was a really, really crappy old tent that leaked if it rained, um, uh, a camping chair and an uh, esky full of uh, Melbourne bitters. And um, I think my, my friends were all disgusted in that and I don't think that they realised that I got the Melbourne Bitters so that they wouldn't ask me for the Melbourne Bitters. So it was the only beer that my friends wouldn't drink. But um, So it didn't rain in 1999, if I remember correctly, so I was lucky there. But um, because I was unprepared, I didn't bring food and I had to uh, buy food, of course. And um, I remember queuing up for about an hour for a vegetarian pizza which was uh, really burnt, really expensive and almost inedible, but I ate it anyway. So I'm very glad to observe that the food catering services are much, much, much improved from 20 years ago. In fact, there's lots of delicious looking stuff here that um, I'd like to uh, try later on. But my overall impression back then was um, it looked like an emerging culture in, in my mind. I thought that then and I thought that now. And, People had a sense of uh, freedom and, and tolerance, I felt, and um, 
these two things were they were important to me 20 years ago, and they're more important than ever to me right now. So. Um, Let's talk about drugs for a little bit. Um, so for those of you that don't know the Liberal Democrats, um, we're classified as a, as a libertarian party. And we don't really fit into the left-right paradigm very well. And um, we're based, our, our whole idea is we're based on the principles and the philosophy of liberty. And you know, I could talk about that for hours, but basically it comes down to, we think that people should be able to act uh, however they say fit, as long as they don't harm other people. And our justification for that um, there's a whole bunch of philosophy behind it, but in short, we think that people uh, own their own bodies and mind, and that they should be the they should be the ultimate person that makes decisions about their own body and mind. Um, you know, it's and we don't think it's the role of government to interfere in that. And surprisingly, to me at least, um, this is a really, really unpopular idea. Um, it seems that uh, in politics and in society generally, there is no end of people who are willing to either willing to use the power of the state to force people to make decisions about their own body or mind that um, they wouldn't otherwise make. And it's, it's still surprising. It was surprising to me then, and it's surprising to me now. And from my from my point of view. Um, I think it's important when we're talking about uh, drugs and these things to talk about principles. Over the last few weeks, you know, I've, I've been involved in, um, you know, getting on board with the pill, te pill testing campaign um, with people such as Fiona, who's been doing a fantastic job over the last few years, and I'm very excited to be working with her in Parliament. But um, I've heard lots of talk about data and evidence and, and these sort of things, and, and they're great, don't get me wrong. I mean, my, my background is data, you know, I, I'm. I worked in data warehousing for the best part of the last two decades. But um, data divorced from principles is, uh, is dangerous. Um, and the reason for that is the data also says that you can uh, reduce the number of people uh, harming themselves at festivals by banning festivals. That's what the data says. The data also says that by you know, locking people in cages, we can reduce the amount of drugs taken. So the, the data alone, I think, is dangerous by itself. We need to talk about principles. And, and from my point of view, um, principles are the most important thing. And so from my party's point of view, we have very clear positions on drugs that are consistent with those principles and I'll outline those for you. Uh, firstly, uh, we believe that cannabis should be fully legalised, except for uh, it shouldn't be sold to children. Um, this has been our party's position since its founding in 2001. Secondly, we think that all drugs should be decriminalised. We don't think that jailing drug consumers helps anyone, and it, costs, it ruins their lives and costs taxpayers a fortune. Uh, thirdly, I support pill testing. See this as a stopgap solution to assist consumers in obtaining more information about substances that can be really dangerous. And lastly, and most controversially, um, I'd, I'd like us to start the conversation about the root cause of all this, the root cause of the dodgy pills, the root cause of uh, expanding organised crime and the spiralling uh, justice system costs, and, and that is uh, prohibition. So, uh, our, our position on that is that we think that society has sort of decided that, you know, alcohol is a legal drug and we'd like to start the conversation about any drug that has a demonstrably less harm than alcohol should be legalised. Um, now, what that, what that actually entails, what those metrics are and what those substances actually uh, turn out to be, 
happy to discuss that and talk with people who have, have far more expertise on the subject than I. But I think it's important to not only talk about the, the harm from drugs, but also about the harms from drug prohibition. Thank you. Hey, David. So we, were, we started in the 70s. We've uh, jumped around a little bit, but I want to go back to that late 80s, 90s period that uh, David Caldicott was uh, talking about before. So uh, in, in the early 80s and the mid-80s, this is when drugs like MDMA were first starting to appear. It wasn't prohibited because it was only really uh, discovered for the uses that it's used today in around uh, that period. Uh, so... But as things went along, the prohibition didn't stop. This idea that we must prohibit these psychoactive substances for... Uh, there, there's, ne there's not any particularly scientific or medical reasons for this. There's never any uh, research done before the... Or any serious, particularly serious research done before the laws were implemented. More now, because people are asking those questions, much less so in the 1970s and 1980s. Uh, I've read through Hansard and the questions. It, it was based off what was happening in the popular media, and it was, it was populist drug policy. It still is today, uh, but that's what was going on. So what, what they uh, kept doing every couple of years, uh, sometimes multiple times a year, was raising the penalties, adding more drugs to the schedules, adding, you know, make, making it all a little bit, little bit harsh, a little bit tighter, always with the excuse, if we do it a little bit harder this time, they'll cut it out, they'll stop it. Every time. And guess what happens? There's more drugs, there's more new drugs than ever before, there's more bizarre and weird drugs out there that people don't know what they're taking. Pill testing didn't need to happen many, many years ago, and now it does because of the, the state of the black market. We, so uh, in, in the early 90s, there were there was sort of some research chems, uh, now sort of called novel psychoactive substances, depending on your, uh, the, the termina uh, terminology you want to use. And, um, but this scene was also the, the sort of early rave, the early doof scene was sort of starting to take off. And along with that were uh, community organisations, including RaveSafe. So RaveSafe... Uh, one of the co-founders was Melissa, and she's going to talk to us a little bit about those uh, early days. Melissa. Thank you. Um, um, yeah, uh, RaveSafe, as it was called in the 90s, very 90s word. Uh, yeah, we started with me and a friend, Michael Arnold. Um, and um, uh, Michael and I came from socialist activist backgrounds. Um, Michael had actually been an environmental youth um, activist from the age of 14 around the country, speaking at rallies. And um, I was kind of uh, involved in socialist feminist activism. And um, we got into festivals together. And um, we got into festivals with actually a highly political crew. Uh, we just moved into a share house in Sydney and that happened to be where Vibe Tribe lived. They were an early party crew. And um, they were actually some of the hardest working anarchist activists in the country as well. Um, and so you actually had this sort of merging of cultures where we got into raves with actually um, through some highly po politicised activists. And um, when we um, noticed that there was no harm reduction information at um, festivals and parties in the early days, um, which we were comparing it to gay and lesbian dance parties. Because my first dance party would have been 1989 and it would have been at the Sydney Dome and they were gay and lesbian dance parties. Because I don't think in 1989 there were dance parties that weren't gay and lesbian. Uh, yeah. Um, and, um, and it was also like a, a really great safe place for me as a 17, 18 year old um, ending high school to be going out because we got to party without the sleaze. And if you think you see these now, you should have... Well, you're, you're just glad you missed the 80s and 90s. Um, because part of the history of the rave scene is actually feminist. And one of the things that both men and women of uh, good sense found intolerable about going out in the 80s and 90s was the sleaze factor. Um, it was 
the um, male behaviour on alcohol was um, just extreme. Um, it was unsafe, it felt unsafe to be in clubs. Uh, and so the festival scene really grew out of good-minded people trying to create safe environments for self-expression where, um, yeah, just I think, just like the, the slogan on the flyer, where your outfit doesn't mean consent. I'm here being free. It's got nothing to do with how I look. So um, it, the, the festival scene came out of, I think, yeah, those kind of, uh, um, yeah, thoughts. And we were, back in the 90s, actually very anti-alcohol. The crews that I hang with, um, with Bessie Creations, we were really anti-alcohol. And this was partly to do with... Um, with male violence on alcohol. Um, so domestic violence is getting a big, a lot of press now, but remember, it is better now than it's ever been. So anything that shocks you about domestic violence, it was worse 10 years ago, 20 years ago. It was just accepted. So, um, um, it, you know, a lot of, um, yeah, so um, we came with all these activist ideas and um, so when we wanted to do something about um, harm reduction and information at festivals, we did it as a collective. So it was just volunteer-based. We advertised in the street press. People came to our house and we just started. People would say, oh, yeah, I'm interested in this and I'm interested in this. And they'd go, great. And they'd go off and they'd research something and put together like a flyer. And then it's just kind of we'd go to parties and most of it was done from the dance floor. Because part of the reason that we thought of this was because, well, me and my friends were probably the kind of people that really did need to get their information straight because some of my friends really liked to push it. And so they were on the dance floor and you'd have water bottles to give out and you'd just basically keep your eyes open. You'd look out for people with their heads stuck in a speaker. You know, it might need, yeah, a bit of looking after. So, yeah, um, that's, that's kind of what we did and, and why. And, um, yeah, it's really great to see the initiative having developed to modern times um, with this crew. Thank you, Melissa. Coming up to the, uh, to the early 2000s and Jonathan Carmichael uh, had been uh, running um, some parties uh, earlier then but uh, decided to get into something else in the early 2000s. Start us off. Yeah. Um, um, can you hear me? Yep. Sort of uh, in Australia between sort of 1995 and about 2005, um, there, was a, there was definitely like a massive do what we call doof culture now developing. It definitely was much smaller back then. But around sort of, I don't know the exact date, but two, around 2000, um, maybe 2003, 2004, we had things like Oztrans running that were forums that were basically based on um, dance party culture. And they were very large and it was basically where you went to connect. It wasn't like Facebook. It was, it, it was basically a whole community that was online just connecting to figure out where these dance parties were. And then they started to really develop, I guess, an academic discussion around dance parties and, I guess, doof culture. Um, I, myself, and a few friends started running outdoor parties, indoor parties, not big stuff, but we, we, we pretty quickly learned that, well, we weren't making any money out of it, and that wasn't the point. It was kind of fun, but it was a lot of hard work. So if we were going to do something, we'd try to do something that could really give value back to the, to the community. Um, and at that time in Australia, around 2000, just before, uh, really when they figured out um, the magic they could do with acacia plants. And I guess you had other, other plants like salvia becoming clones, getting shared around. And, and there's this whole sort of ethnobotanical community started to sort of really blossom, I guess, and 
come into its own around this sort of slightly around the Duff culture. So at the time, we kind of all knew that education was something was really required. And especially in the botanical world where you could grow these things yourself and you really couldn't uh, find out what to do next with it correctly, dose-wise or anything like that, unless you kind of really went to the library and really started hitting the books. And, and many of us are boffins, and that's exactly what we did. And then we ran into other boffins that were there. Um, so we sort of decided, we, we had the crew, we had the energy. Um, we probably didn't have the time, but we were gonna give it a go. Um, yeah, so we, we decided to have the first ethnobotanical conference, well, what we call now um, uh, the ethnobotanical conference. But it was in a library, so it was actually boffins. It was people who'd been on the dance floor on the Sunday, you know, week before, and then they decided to turn up to the library and talk about plants. And they didn't turn up with, like, you know, drugs and stuff. They turned up with bot botany books, and they just started nerding out and swapping plants. And it really became a, sh a, uh, a, sh a seed and plant-sharing community and really about teaching other people techniques about how to get the plants out to each other. Because we didn't know when these plants were either going to become illegal or we were going to get clamped down on. So it really became a community about sharing, um, I guess, yeah, what no Mother Nature had given us, why we could. So if we were going to then grow those plants, we'd give them to our mums, our grannies, our, whatever we could to keep those shamanic plants out in the community. And then as we realised we weren't all just getting arrested, we started to take it even more seriously. So we really uh, basically focused on building a, uh, a conference that focused on ethnobotanic knowledge and uh, sharing and basically, I guess you'd say, keepers of the plants. Uh, if we're today, you know, just 15, 16 years later, um, we really, in Australia, we have a pretty unique ethnobotanic community and uh, it's just one of the sort of ethnobotanical events in the world, uh, but it's pretty well known across the world for what it's done. Um, yeah, and I guess I'm personally just proud of all the people and, uh, that volunteered and helped out in that community to keep it going because it's without them, we'd be nowhere. Um, so today, you know, we publish a journal, we have a YouTube channel with 70 videos or 80 videos online that's free for everyone to access. So it's really just trying to get the information and stay true. Um, and that's what it's been all about. Thank you. Actually, I should just say there as well. So it was through, through the two, two, uh, 2000s, as um, uh, uh, Jonathan um, highlighted too, uh, there were a number of uh, the, the, the law changes that were coming through. There were a number of uh, obscure chemicals and plants that were being added. There was also an attempt by the uh, federal government to uh, put a ban on anything that contains DMT. Uh, so a uh, campaign had to be uh, put up against them to point out that, see that national emblem of our country, that wattle there contains DMT. Uh, and then people pointing out all the rest of the uh, wattles. So that, that, that got canned, but it was very, and this is the way that a lot of the drug policy has happened. People who don't know what they're talking about, who don't go and ask the right questions or the right people making the decisions for everyone else. And that is, that then gets ingrained into the law and it gets ingrained and uh, passed on to the next generation because this is a generational problem. So, moving forwards to more recent history, uh, next up we have Steph Genetis, who's the program coordinator for Harm Reduction Victoria's DanceWise program, which is operating here on site, biggest event of the year, and she's going to fill us in a little bit more about recent history and what that looks like. 
Thank you, Ash. Um, and do stick around for the panel afterwards, uh, which Melissa will be on as well. And we've got some of the New South Wales Dancewise crew, um, including the EO of the organisation up in Sydney, uh, here to get a more comprehensive idea of what Dancewise has been um, and is growing towards. Um, but uh, just commenting on this idea of culture wars, and Ash, you're talking about the, the more recent history, it does feel quite strange to be talking in terms of history when really it's happening right now. Um, we're at a festival in Australia, and many of you may notice that there is a sort of cultural shift that's been happening in recent years, and maybe at this festival even this year. Can I get a show of hands if anyone uh, has an idea of what I'm talking about, this, this idea of clamping down on drug use? Is anyone, anyone observing anything that, that, like I'm getting, hands are coming up. Can, I, can you put your hand up really high if you have been noticing things that seem a bit different? Smattering. Yeah. So, and I don't want to be pointing fingers and saying that we are going head to head, um, it's about shutting down festivals, but that's the kind of messaging that seems to be um, promoted by the media, and I think it's quite unfair, and I don't actually think it represents um, the intentions of authorities either. Um, what goes on at festivals like Rainbow Serpent is we come together, we get to enjoy um, what the dance floor, uh, learning new things, meeting people, just being in nature. I often have thought of uh, outdoor festivals as an opportunity for people, especially people living up in built up areas, living in urban areas to reconnect with nature because you can't spend that much time in nature without recognizing that this is a, an integral part to being alive. So I think that the, the the essence of festivals is is coming together, but often what gets uh, the most attention is um it's like the scapegoat. The drugs or the drug use becomes the scapegoat. We, we may or may not be choosing to use certain substances, and I do believe that people genuinely want to reduce the risks when they do so, and they're not using those substances because they don't care about themselves or the people around them. It's just part of... Um, living your life, expressing yourself, and having like pleasure in your life. But sometimes coming together like this gets um, tarnished in its entirety by people who, who are kind of fearful of any kind of alternative lifestyle. And then just it just gets, they're just a bunch of drug users. So that's the kind of slander, that's the kind of rhetoric that you hear. And what that does is it, it means that people are stigmatizing everyone associated with this community, but also anyone who uses drugs in any context. Because we have to remember that drug use isn't just happening in festivals, it happens at every level of society. So that's a strange thing when you're talking about culture wars is it's hard to pinpoint exactly where, what, when and how is good or bad and whether that's the kind of conversation we, be ha we should be having in the first place. Uh, so I think I left it in quite a cryptic kind of philosophical point, but I, f I feel I'm not ready to reflect on what's happening right now because I think it's happening as we speak. I think this summer has been quite an interesting summer in terms of festivals, in terms of the kinds of strategies that are being used at festivals to try promote safety. And uh, I'm watching this space quite attentively. Uh, I just encourage you all to um, support each other. And if you do see something that concerns you or you see someone that is in need, like intervene in a positive and constructive way uh, because there's a lot of beautiful things that happen at festivals like this and it would be an absolute travesty for music festivals to be banned.
Just uh, the uh, bringing us up to the modern day is the uh, is the novel psychoactive substances. This is the past ten years uh, of our history, especially the past five years, uh, where uh, a sort of confluence of technology and inf uh, information uh, has happened, where the technology's reached a point where people can relatively cheaply and relatively easily make brand new drugs uh, and and get them manufactured. There was there's a um, little documentary, uh, Max Power. He, he did it. He went and got a drug designed uh, on a web program uh, and he sent it off to, sent the design off to a, uh, the molecular design off to a lab in uh, India, had it made and it was, it was, it had arrived a week later. So this is how easy it's become, right? This is why this is happening now because it is that easy to create these new drugs. So this set off a whole flurry of, uh, of new laws that needed to be introduced because the way our drug laws work is each drug has to be scheduled individually uh, in the Schedule 9 in Victoria, which is our prohibitionary schedule, so that you, they're all listed in there. There's 200 drugs in there. Most of them are steroids. Uh, so there you go. Most of the drugs uh, are steroids, not psychoactive drugs. Uh, so uh, in, in the sort of mid-2013, well, 2013, 14, 15, I was working with Fiona Patton uh, at the Eros Association and we were seeing uh, the spread of uh, sort of grey market of novel psychoactive substances uh, where things like, uh, I, this term is loaded, uh, but synthetic cannabinoid type substances, you've probably heard of these, uh, or Synthetic cocaine is already synthesised from the copa plant, but the, it's, a, it's a, a, different, a different chemical. All sorts of chemicals were being sort of marketed and sold uh, in all sorts of um, shops, some in quite, quite a legitimate-looking fashion. Uh, but as these laws progressed, uh, the manufacturers were like cat and mouse. They, they would just make a new one, the government would ban it. And so this is when we were seeing sometimes two uh, new laws per year until uh, relatively recently where they went, you know what, anything that has a psychoactive effect is banned. Even if it doesn't exist yet, you draw it and we, we think that it's going to have a psychoactive effect, it's banned. So, and this is absurd because the psychoactive effect in and of itself is not a health risk. It is not necessarily going to harm you to have a psychoactive effect. Life is a psychoactive effect. Sometimes it harms you, sometimes it doesn't. So it's, that is not in and of itself a good reason to ban something, but that is now where our laws stand. And uh, Nick... So hang on, I'll just come in there. So while this was happening, one of the other contexts that's happening is around the world we're seeing a revival in an understanding of the therapeutic potential of a whole range of these substances. So we've seen cannabis legalised in a bunch of places in the United States. Canada's now legalised it. We're seeing MDMA with fast-track approval with the FDA for treating um, PTSD in the United States and other places around the world. So as me and Nick were connecting and starting to get more involved in the activist movement here, we talked for quite a long time about the need for there to be a student youth activist movement. And um, when I bumped into Penny down the back there at a drug law reform event, not so dissimilar from this, um, she had similar ideas, this vision that we really need some kind of movement to exist. And Nick Kent's one of the people that we found. And now that um, we're a few years in, we've seen uh, this grassroots movement start to flourish around the country as people realise that there's a place for them to call for the changes that we need in society. So Nick's going to talk a little bit about uh, recent, very recent history leading up to the present of what's happening in this culture war. Hey, um, cool. Hi, everyone. Um, 
I'm going to do that. I'm also going to start at the very beginning very briefly too. Um, but first of all, I just wanted to say uh, it's awesome to be up here with all these awesome, experienced legends who have paved the way for a very long time for us to even be able to have this conversation. Um, I guess I'm going to talk a little bit about what it's like to be a part of this movement as a young person um, and as someone who's um, been learning as I go um, and been given an opportunity to... Um, to hear all kinds of elements of this conversation across all kinds of time periods and cultures and um, places around the world. Um, and just continuing on with my introduction, my background is, is I actually started this journey as a, as a history teacher student. Um, and um, so therefore I'm gonna start this conversation with the very beginning um, and just again reiterate an acknowledgement of country um, to the traditional owners of the land that we're on, the Dja Dja Wurrung and Wadawurrung, who's welcoming uh, onto their sacred land here makes this festival and this conversation even possible. And um, I think there's a really interesting conversation in the fact that what brings us here on this weekend of invasion weekends, um, to have this conversation, to partake in this culture, um, the intersections around that with social justice and colonization and partying and pleasure and community and drugs um, is the most fascinating thing I've ever come across. Um, and it was really this, um, this panel in 2016 um, where I was just out here um, hearing a lot of this for the first time um, and where Nash and Penny were just starting to set up SSDP um, that really introduced me to all of this. Um, and to be honest, all roads lead me to keep acknowledging that and to start the conversation there because the drug war began a long time before the 1970 tre treaties it actually began with the process of colonization where certain drugs were used on the frontier to dope uh, indigenous peoples and make them more vulnerable. Um, and whereas certain sacred plant rituals which were conducive to cohesion in those communities were banned. Um, and that's where this conversation started. Um, so it's important to acknowledge that and acknowledge the ongoing struggles of indigenous peoples. Um, <clears throat> So building on that, um, I think we are, yeah, this term culture war is, is fascinating and um, whether or not we choose to use that to describe what's going on right now, I think there's definitely a huge tension and an inherent tension in who we are as a country, as a world, um, as, as young people inheriting that world. Um, and a part of that for many of us who come to these events is drug use. Um, and that's complicated, um, and that's the, my area of study, um, is, is drug education and how we talk to young people about this um, inherent human phenomenon of seeking altered states of consciousness, which goes back um, to the very beginning. Um, but there's been this, there's been a war, and it's actually not our language, that's Richard Nixon's language, that's Ronald Reagan's language, that's Tony Abbott's language. Mm. Um, we are at war. And um, we have been for a very long time. And there are what we would call power structures who want to put barriers up every way they can for these conversations to be able to occur. Um, and that's one of the things that we've been struggling and increasingly succeeding at overcoming. Um, and I think that I can just talk briefly to my personal experience about who I was when I came to this panel in 2016 as someone with like a whole bunch of gut feelings about the power of you know, the dance floor and the power of um, what it means to be here um, and, and most importantly, what it means for society to reject that and what it means for society or mainstream culture or whatever to try and make us feel guilty about that, to try and make it hard for us to speak up about what that feels like to our family, to our friends, to our colleagues, to our children, 
um, to the other people around us. And um, that's what I struggled to overcome. Like I was at Melbourne Graduate School of Education, just asking myself constantly why they weren't teaching me how to teach, how to talk to kids about drugs. Um, and so I went and wrote my thesis in that, but it was really Students for Sensible Drug Policy, who I came and signed myself up to straight away after this panel, that gave me the confidence and the connection to the evidence base, which is unequivocal. Guys, the evidence is in. There is not a shred of tangible data or lived experience to support the notion of drug prohibition. And we're gonna see that narrative unfold in our lifetimes. Um, and I think that one thing that I've found is like crucial to that conversation is the inclusion and central place of young people. And we're the largest users of drugs, where there's, a, there's a, a thing in human life in which in the youthful stage you want to experience these things. And that's natural and that's something that can be managed if we have good policies and um, approaches to it. And I'm convinced, and through my experience with SSDP growing the organisation, um, and uh, you know, leading the chapter at the University of Melbourne, where we were able to instigate policy change on campus through student union advocacy and politics um, to supply reagents, uh, reagent testing kits to students free of charge. And that was a globally significant program. Um, and so that's an example of where a bunch of, you know, in theory, pretty disempowered young people who are um, stigmatized, on, you know, in, in the conversation are not supposed to be able to speak openly about what they value um, and what they experience at these festivals. Um, and most importantly, there's structural barriers put in place for them to um, connect with the evidence base that will justify and, and, and bolster those opinions. Um, and so that's what SSDP really exists to do. Um, we're a whole youth organization. Um, our name is inherited from an international network, but we're actually for all young people. And there's ways for anyone who identifies with us and our message to get involved. Um, and I really implore you to do that. Um, this conversation, this shift that is being referred to, um, is immense. <laughs> I spend my life in this conversation now and it, it's, 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 it's going more quickly than I can even keep up with. Um, and we need all hands on deck really. So if you wanna get involved or you wanna learn how you can get involved or you just wanna learn more, come and speak to one of the people in yellow, um, come and sign up at our, our market stall um, or come in and have a chat to us at the Dancewise tent as well. Um, I'll just speak very briefly about this campaign and where it came from. Um, it's called Be Heard Not Harmed. And it's a, it's a campaign that we've launched uh, in a coalition with Dancewise and Dancewise New South Wales and our Sydney team um, in response to this ridiculous um, conversation around pill testing that we're seeing where um, I don't even know where to start, where there's literally not one real evidence-based answer to why we don't have this here at this festival. And the reasons why we don't are really sinister and really corrupt. And I've watched this debate go round and round for several years now and um, have been really frustrated at the one the lack of young people's voices but two the lack of our capacity as a national organization to wedge ourselves in there and that's really changed in 2018. Sorry to interrupt yeah. Nick we've, we've run out of time there but Nick's going to be talking more about the Be Heard Not Harmed campaign uh, at the panel directly following this one so stick around uh, so you can go into a little bit more of that and um, about this battle that has been escalating over a number of years. Today's show was recorded live at Rainbow Serpent Festival in January this year. The video is available to watch at Rainbow's YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash Rainbow Serpent HQ. 
We're hoping to do a second part to this panel at Rainbow Serpent Festival in 2020 and focus deeper on some of the current issues and current players, uh, but always with uh, context to the broader story, and we're going to find out about that soon and let you know. Subscribe to our podcast, follow us on Facebook and Twitter, get in contact with us if you have something to share. Critically engaged queer commentary with Queering the Air is up after three and at four on 3CR, Hip Sister Hop showcases dope tracks from dope femcs with a focus on Indigenous and women of colour. See ya. This, is- this has been a 3CR podcast. You can hear Encyclopedia Live every Sunday from 2pm. Head to 3cr.org.au for more.